Hi, welcome to the Transforming Spaces podcast by Gendered Intelligence. My name's Annie and my pronouns are she or they. And I'm Frankie and my pronouns are he, him. Gendered Intelligence is a charity that works to increase understandings of gender diversity and help improve the lives of all trans people. Our vision is of a world where people are no longer constrained by narrow perceptions and expectations of gender and where diverse gender expressions are visible and valued. If you're interested in supporting gendered intelligence or to find out more about our youth work, volunteer scheme, educational and professional services, please visit genderedintelligence.co.uk or follow us on our Twitter at genderintel. In this week's episode, we'll hear from Francis Ray White and Dr. Ruth Pierce, who are presenting their research on trans pregnancy. And a panel is hosted by Jason Barker. Everybody. Welcome to this session, which is called Making Space for Trans Pregnancy. Most of the, the beginning of this session is going to be a presentation by Dr. Francis Ray White and by Dr. Ruth Pierce. So I'm going to sit over here because I'm really interested to hear about what they have to say about a project they've been working on. And then we're going to have a bit of a, a chat. I'm going to ask some questions between the three of us and open it up bigger to the audience. Right, so I'm going to pass on to you then, okay. Francis and Ruth. Thank you. Okay, I'm going to stand up. Apologies for those of you who've already heard me speak today. These are my two expert areas, toilets, pregnancy. Actually, no, it's not So, um, Ruth and I are part of this trans pregnancy project, which has been led by um, Professor Sally Hines, who was originally going to join us today, but she is actually in Copenhagen, talking to some midwives about the project. So Radical midwives. Radical midwives, okay. <laughs> Um, so that's where she is. Um, so it's the two of us. And um, this is a big three-year international project funded by the ESRC, the Economic and Social Research Council, to investigate, in inverted commas, transmasculine practices of reproduction. Although we are increasingly recognising that maybe transmasculine um, might not be how all of our participants can think of themselves, and we might come back to the questions around language at another point. Um, so what the project is um, investigating is um, the experiences of people who have conceived after starting some kind of social and or physical transition. Um, so we're interested in the kind of embodied experiences of those people, as well as more kind of practical everyday negotiations with um, healthcare professionals in healthcare settings um, and just a general kind of practical issues of being uh, a not woman person whilst pregnant. Um, and so if you yourself are such a person and we have not already interviewed you, <laughs> we have some flyers and things and we would be very interested in talking to you. Um, and so what we are doing is um, interviews with um, people who have experienced pregnancy um, and we're doing those across um, the UK, in the USA, in Australia and we are going to do some in Europe um, as well, hopefully at some point. Um, and so we're hoping to gather um, around 50 plus interviews um, all together, which makes this by far the biggest project uh, on, on experiences of transparency ever, I think. Um, and so we are also, in conjunction with uh, Gender Intelligence, going to run some focus groups with young trans men and uh, assigned female non-binary folks, again, 
definitions of language, um, to explore how those people might feel about the kind of possibility of being pregnant. Is it something that they can imagine doing? Um, is it something um, that they sort of, how would they kind of negotiate that with their gender identity? Is it something that they um, are uh, envisaging for their future in terms of how they form families or go about the kind of process of reproduction? So again, if there's anybody here aged 18 to 25 who um, is of the uh, trans, male, masculine and non-binary persuasion, um, we may again be interested in getting in touch with us so that we can recruit you for a focus group. Um, uh, and so finally, uh, we're going to do some also focus groups with practitioners, um, uh, healthcare practitioners in particular, uh, so if there's any of them, we're just using this to recruit participants basically. Um, we're also doing some, uh, kind of we've, well we've done some reviews of law, relevant law and policy in the, the different um, geographical locations that we are um, working in and we've put those, those are available on our website already and we're going to do at some point some uh, kind of discourse type analysis of um, the kind of more public discussion around um, trans pregnancy as well. So the outcomes of the project we hope will be to contribute to um, growing academic research on sort of diverse trans experiences as well as trans kind of parenting and reproduction but also to um, produce some more practical resources for practitioners um, and part of this will also um, include making a documentary film with Jason, or well, Jason is going to make the film, <laughs> um, which we will use as part of our kind of dissemination and just to, so that we can make the findings accessible to the kind of widest range of people that we can. Um, so today we're going to go through some of the issues we've already kind of encountered or identified um, on the project and share some of the initial findings um, and then hopefully we'll have time for um, lovely Q&A. So, to start off with, I think um, we're all familiar with uh, Thomas Beattie, the quote-unquote world's first pregnant man. Um, and I think this is the, the first kind of hurdle that we're coming across in terms of um, uh, the kind of perception of trans pregnancy as something that is continually sort of new and novel um, and it's not to deny the kind of significance of BT and his sort of publicness um, in doing this, um, but that it sets up a particular kind of way in which um, uh, trans pregnancy has kind of been thought of. So I'm going to hand over to you. The next bit. <laughs> so I'm going to talk a little bit about origin stories now. Yeah. I'm going to get a bit theory. The sociologists, we love theory. So um, moving on from BT, of course, we've had our own um, first pregnant men uh, in many other countries, such as here in the United Kingdom. So here was a story from last year, uh, proudly showing off his baby bump. The first British man to be pregnant, says the Daily Mail. 2017. This is the same Daily Mail that in 2012 also announced uh, the first pregnant man in Britain. So you can kind of see this reoccurring theme, right? There's this obsession with newness, and that's the thing about Thomas Beatty, this idea of the first. And we'll be used to this in this room, I'm fairly certain. The first trans... What is it, the first trans? Well, we're always the first. We're always unique. We're always special. We're always unusual. We're always strange. And with the, with the kind of trans pregnancy narrative, it's quite interesting because... Beatty, of course, wasn't the first, and there were plenty of us 
um, saying that in 2008, but it wasn't just that he wasn't the first man to become pregnant, he also wasn't the first to receive media attention. Um, here's a picture of um, Matt Rice, for instance, with um, his partner at the time, uh, Pat Califia, um, with their child, and that was an article in the Village Voice in 2000. Um, and of course, trans people have been having children for as long as trans people have existed, which is, of course, forever. But what's interesting is how the story gets told. Um, so this idea that we've been using to, to get hold of this is this thing that C.N. Lester talks about, um, which is cultural amnesia, and uh, Meg John Barker talked about this earlier this morning, this idea of forgetting things, and consequently the shock of the new. And the new is always shocking, trans is always shocking, because there's this forgetting of our existence and what we are. Um, so trans stories in the media often rely on this sense of sensationalism and a novelty that comes from that newness and that idea of newness and, you know, sexing things up. And it's far more sexy if it's Britain's first pregnant man rather than another man is pregnant, has the NHS got procedures in process to <laughs> support people yet. Um, and you can see this historically in trans narratives. Um, the reaction to Christine Jorgensen, who of course wasn't the first woman to transition, but was the first one to have major media reporting. According to Susan Straker, uh, Jorgensen attracted more headlines than the invention of the polio vaccine in the same year, um, or the Korean War. So, you know, there's a lot of attention, novelty, excitement, and yet you see that repeated as if it never happened um, when Caitlyn Jenner came out. And it's the way that it constructs trans as new, right? Trans as news makes us new all the time. And it's a really poor basis for healthcare policy. Um, what about research? I've got to admit, we're not the first. Um, there's been some interesting studies in the States recently, which I'll refer to soon. But you can go way back before that. There was a study in 1998, which interviewed nine trans men who'd been pregnant. There was a study in 1988 which was incredibly pathologizing, but still relevant, uh, female to male transsexuals who have delivered and reared their children. Um, that had 11 clinical case studies. Um, so how many trans birth parents are there? It's the question that sometimes people want to know. We need to know numbers, otherwise we can justify what we're doing. And of course, it's hard to count trans people, and it's especially hard to count trans pregnancies. So the, the answer is we don't know. Okay, there we go. Um, but this slide, um, just to give you some ideas of numbers being higher than we might expect, um, there's one of the earliest studies I referred to. Most of them are post-2010, uh, post-Thomas Beattie. Um, it's not a coincidence, um, but there was a study um, based in the States with an international survey. They had 41 trans men participating. Um, Australia, interestingly, has started recording trans births, not deliberately. They passed a law which meant all of their healthcare statistics had to include male and female, which of course you can see the problems there. But accidentally what they did is record how many men gave birth, which in the stats we have available to us from 2015 to 2016 is 44. There should be another report out soon with how many had birth between 2016 and 17. But you can push back to 2013 and find out that 40 to 55 men have given birth in Australia every year which is quite amazing, actually. There's an international internet support group, one of several, um, for trans parents, um, for trans parents who give birth, specifically. 
Um, and it has over 3,900 members. Now, many of those are allies and partners, but a lot of them are trans birth parents. And there's been at least six documentaries released in the, in the last year on the topic. Um, we've had Jason's amazing documentary, <laughs> um, which, which we might say something later. Um, that's a UK-based one. There's one I believe, um, oh, My Generation put out yesterday. There was one on ITV. There's been two from the States, and there's been one from Ecuador. We're everywhere. I say we. In this instance, I'm talking as a trans woman, so I'm not going to be pregnant anytime soon, although people are working on that. Um, so I'm going to pass on now to Francis, who's going to talk about what law and policy is doing in the face of these exciting changes. Yeah. Not much. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, um, the kind of first thing that we did in, uh, was to um, think about uh, the kind of legal and policy situations in which transparency will take place, um, which will of course be different in different locations. Um, and so we've conducted policy reviews of the UK and the US and Australia so far, because the policy context will guide what's kind of legally possible uh, and what is accessible to people. And so today I'm just going to highlight a couple of issues from the UK policy review, um, which point to some of the ways trans pregnancy is thought about, or more often not thought about, which is the case. And this is the point about there being no kind of space for trans pregnancy to exist, um, especially kind of outside this sort of sensationalisation, um, which is kind of the only air it's given at the moment. So we reviewed various relevant policies, laws, other kinds of health guidelines. Um, and what they suggest is that while there are in the UK no legal barriers to trans male, trans masculine, or non binary pregnancy or reproduction, there is a complete lack of acknowledgement of it. So, for example, um, uh, changing one's gender markers in the UK or getting a gender recognition certificate does not require you to be sterilised, uh, which is good, obviously. Um, so, the possibility to become pregnant is not removed um, at that point. Although our kind of friend and colleague Michael Toes has talked about how there's a, a kind of um, expectation that trans men will undergo hysterectomy at some point, which is a kind of a separate issue. Um, usually, when we do this talk, he's here to talk about that. <laughs> I feel wrong that he's not here today. Um, and so, uh, so yes. Although you can have the uh, the equipment on site to get pregnant. Um, there's no way in kind of law or policy for that person to be subsequently recognised as anything other than the mother of a child. Um, and those people will find themselves consistently assumed to be female or a, a woman um, in all the kind of legal and policy uh, documentation. So this leads us to some interesting contradictions. Um, so firstly, the, the Gender Recognition Act, as is, um, states that when a gender recognition certificate is issued, then the person's gender becomes, for all purposes, the acquired gender, which is fine. Um, but if a trans man has a baby under the Birth, Death and Recogni uh, Registration Act, 1953, um, he must be recorded as the mother uh, on the birth certificate. And not only does this mean that we do not have a record of how many men might have given birth, 
um, in the UK. But it also suggests that somebody is perhaps not able to be a man for all purposes, um, thus giving that person quite an inconsistent mix of male and female kind of legal um, statuses. Interestingly, the term father um, in the legislation has been acknowledged as, as kind of problematically gendered in the light of the changes brought by the Human Fertilisation and Embryology Act in, uh, of 2008, which allows a second female uh, parent to be entered on a birth certificate, um, at which point they had to recognise that all references in legislation to a father could be read as referring to a female person. But nowhere is it acknowledged that a mother might refer to a male person. And so the term mother remains, um, I would argue, entirely kind of coded as feminine uh, or as female. So obviously, too, the Gender Recognition Act does not recognise non-binary people. Um, so there's currently no way to legally recognise um, those people in the registration of the birth of their children. So the only time that the Gender Recognition Act does mention parenthood is when it asserts the parental rights of people who became parents before they transitioned. Um, and it says the fact that a person's gender has become the acquired gender under this act does not affect the status of the person as the father or mother of a child. Again, no space to be a non-binary parent there. But the absence of provision for uh, people who become parents after transition speaks to the assumption that trans people kind of won't or can't or don't become pregnant. Um, and that seems to hold even in legislation that's kind of specifically about trans people at the GRA. So I think this really tells us a lot about um, the kind of collective familial imagination or imaginary and about a, a kind of cultural ideas and expectations about who can and will create a family. And I think it says a lot also about the limits of trans bodies currently in our kind of cultural and legal imagination. Trans people just do not exist in certain spaces. Um, and there seems to be no crossover in the kind of existence of trans bodies and reproductive bodies. So um, the situation with birth certificates is actually being challenged in the UK courts at the moment. You might remember this um, came up in June of this year. Um, this man, who I presume he may well have given birth to this child by now, wants to be recorded as the father on the birth certificate of his child. Um, but I think, you know, the emotional language that this is reported in is very telling. It's all about, um, you know, this child being without a mother. Uh, that comes us a lot. This idea he's, that the child will be losing something rather than the focus being on the trans man who is losing his identity or is being erased or is being misrecorded or is being inconsistently recorded. So there's no acknowledgement here, of course, that the child is maybe gaining or has a loving um, birth parent. So it will be interesting to see, this is ongoing, um, whether um, uh, what happens in this case, which I think has been uh, the next sort of hearing or ruling or I understand legal things, um, will be now in uh, February 2019. You'll go. So, uh, <laughs> my go. Um, that's the background. Um, what about the people we've spoken to? So we said we're going to do uh, 50 interviews. So far we have done 23, which is really exciting, in the UK, US and Australia. There's a lot more to come and also we haven't had a chance to read through and analyse all of the transcripts in depth, but we have 
had kind of like some of some of us have read through some, some of us read through others, we've had a few conversations, and here are some initial things that we think are emerging from what we've looked at so far. One theme is about this idea of it becoming possible, right? Because if trans is constantly new, how does it become possible to be a certain kind of trans person, for instance, a trans person who gives birth? How does it become possible? Um, and there's this idea that I see um, bounced around trans spaces a lot, um, and I know that Van Cox talked about it a few years ago, of possibility models, which I think is a way of thinking about it, right? It's, it's an idea about what models exist for us to see and go, oh, I can do that, it's okay. And so Lewis, who I talked to, talked about how he thought that his only chance to have children was before he went on testosterone. Now it's worth bearing in mind a lot of our part research participants did not go on testosterone, but a bunch did. And in Lewis's case, um, he thought that his only chance to have a child would be after, uh, sorry, before going on testosterone. He didn't realize that he could go on testosterone, come off, and then safely have a child. So he had a kid earlier than he might have actually originally wanted. So he's talking about the importance of more research, so even going with more educated knowledge about having a child. And perhaps it won't even be a question about do you or do you not want a child when they transition, because sometimes people describe pressure from gender clinics. You know, you have to be a certain kind of man in order to get treatment. And he says, well, and it'll be like, okay, right? These are my options for having children of my own. That sort of thing. And he can do it before or after, and this is just what the medical professional is going to be like. What is it going to be like? What possibilities are there before and after going on testosterone or beginning a transition with regards to having a child? And it's the unknown, the lack of knowledge about that, that adds to the whole distress of it. And it's interesting, related to this, that the story of Thomas Beatty and the story of other trans parents, birth parents, uh, such as Trevor MacDonald from Canada, um, who is not to be mistaken for the um, national treasure of the same name, um, the Americans and Canadians don't understand how funny this is. But I think it's wonderful, it would be wonderful if Trevor had a child. Um, but, but images such as this, such as BT and such as Trevor, are things that our research participants come back to. I saw this and then I realised it was possible. So there is something in those news stories. Um, the issue is when it becomes unique um, or, or unusual or sexy in a way that makes it feel less like a material possibility and more like a freak show. Um, Something that those who had been on testosterone talked about a lot, and one research participant referred to as the biggest lie, is the idea that trans people are infertile after going on hormones. This isn't true for transmasculine people on testosterone or transfeminine people on estrogen, necessarily. We do know that we don't know exactly what impact they have. You are very, very unlikely after being on estrogen for a long time to be able to produce sperm that will um, you know, help conceive. However, if you come off estrogen, it can sometimes be a possibility. Similarly with testosterone. Testosterone is not a contraception. Um, something that a number of people we've talked to who work in STI clinics have told us is a bit of a problem for people who come in and realize they're pregnant, not realizing that they could still get pregnant. 
But this sense that you can become infertile on hormones doesn't just perpetuate within trans spaces. People sometimes get the impression from gender clinics. Um, and so Joseph told, said, you know, I was starting testosterone. I was told multiple times I was making myself infertile. And not only that, he was encouraged to get a hysterectomy, told that it was necessary to avoid cancer. Now, as Michael Toes has shown, again, there's relatively little information available on this. And in fact, there's no research basis for asking this. But until very recently, um, it was general NHS um, protocols and practices for English gender clinics required that transmasculine people were asked, um, oh, please think very seriously about having a hysterectomy after two years on testosterone. And people describe it as a lot of pressure. Joseph talks about, um, he says they really pushed for it as well. Um, Charing Cross particularly, Nottingham less so, um, but that was because he was already on testosterone. And he says, but it was definitely just so the next thing you do is get a hysterectomy. And he didn't want one because he wanted to maintain his fertility, even though being on testosterone, he assumed he wasn't infertile, but he still had this sense of something being taken away, something he didn't want to be taken away. And he says, but it was like, I do not want, because it's gone then. Even in my head, there was no point in keeping it. I couldn't do it. And so those were two kind of explicit examples of how trans people can get erased by this idea of newness, by this forgetting. But there's also a kind of more active forgetting. And Stevie talked about this um, as an example. And Stevie was a, a genderqueer person um, who was often perceived as a woman and talked about going to a parenting group with their female partner where they were read as a lesbian couple. And Stevie found it intensely uncomfortable because of the implicit heterosexism and the implicit cisgenderism, the assumption that everyone there was both straight and cis, and for that matter, female. Uh, and Stevie says, I went to this parenting, NHS parenting thing one day, which I nearly left about three minutes in and I kind of laugh about it now, but it's one of these situations where like, oh, I'm gonna cry or shout or storm out, but I can't cope with this. Because straight away, as soon as you go in, it's like, oh, lady, hello, ladies, will you sign in, ladies? And then we sit down and everyone else there, in this case, it was one um, with a man and a woman, there were other ones um, that were for their parents only, but in this case, a man and a woman, sit down, a man and a woman, the husband, the wife, the wife is having the baby. And so Stevie described this and said, oh, that sounds like quite an intense kind of gendering. And they said, this like the most intense gendering I've probably experienced since Maybury Primary School. And what's really interesting as a consequence of this, it's only our non-binary participants who are not on hormones, two of them have tried going to these groups and they've had a bad time. The trans men in the project have said, these aren't for me, I just haven't gone. I know they're not for me, which means they're not accessing services to help them prepare for the birth, and they're not accessing services to help them with parenting after the birth because of this expectation of gendering. Does it have to be like this? Not necessarily. Um, so there's a few examples from the US and Canada, um, and they're listed in the US Policy Review, which you can find on our website. The Midwives Alliance of North America, for instance, has a statement on the use of inclusive language. Um, and they've also revised their core competencies to use gender-neutral language. One of the things that's really interesting about this organisation is they don't see a distinction between trans-inclusive and providing a woman-centred service. And the reason for that, they say, 
Um, and I think this is quite an important thing to think on. They say, well, the vast majority of people accessing our service services are women, and not everybody is. So what we need to do is make sure that we talk about feminism, we talk about women's services and women's health, but we also talk about parents and trans people and inclusion and different kinds of birth parents. And you can do both of those things without the two being in contradiction. Similarly, the Association of Ontario midwives have used gender-neutral language in recent documents um, and provided explicit guidance. Now, there are some isolated UK centres beginning to do this. For instance, I think there might be someone from Brighton and Sussex midwives in the room. Hi, we need to talk. I've been hearing about you from everybody. Um, so uh, if, you wanna, if you're trans and you want to give birth, Brighton's one of the places to be. Um, every, everyone talks about how great it is um, who's, been, who's been down there. Um, and so that is beginning to happen, but we have less of this kind of institutional setup to regard trans as possible and not something special, strange and freakish, but something that we provide for. We might also um, see changes in the WPATH standards of care. Now this is the document produced by the World Professional Association for Transgender Health, and historically it's been used to oversee transitions. However, they're revising the standards of care at the moment to be something wider than physical transition and provide advice on trans healthcare more widely. And there's a lot of trans people involved in this process. So the forthcoming version 8 standards of care will include a chapter on reproductive health. This is very positive, or regard it as possible. Uh, and Juno Obadir-Malava, who was involved in some of that earlier research I was talking about, um, said that what they're trying to do is look at the whole spectrum of reproductive health. So not just um, pregnancy and childbirth, but also access to abortion services, fertility services, and good guidance for people who want to physically transition about what their options are and the limitations of those. And Juno says this is about supporting trans people in not just surviving, but thriving, and having families where desired. So this could be very positive indeed. Um, so I'm going to end by saying, consequently, we need to be thinking beyond the shock of the new, right? As in, as in Doctor Who, which um, was really kind of lovely if you watched it on Sunday where they had a pregnant man. Um, but I, I went and saw what some of the trans birth parents I know were saying. One was saying, this was amazing, but we're not aliens. Um, and so I quite like this idea of kind of, you know, acts of imagination of trans, made trans people fact, not fiction. In that Doctor Who episode, they have this amazing uh, quote from the Doctor, which I'm going to end on, which I think is a way of thinking beyond that cultural amnesia, right? Whole worlds pivot on acts of imagination. Thanks. Wow. Exciting work. So I've realised in my introduction, I forgot to say that I have experienced being a not-woman person while pregnant. <laughs> so, yeah, so I, I, was a, I was a pregnant man. I think I was the UK's first. I like to claim that now. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly before that, Hayden, what's his name? Um, about two years. Um, <laughs> no, when... Um, I, sorry, I've got to say... this? Crack it, crack it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> right, um, right, so I, I, I wrote tons of notes. Every time I wrote a note, then your next slide would address the note. So I've moved on to another note. I wrote, see in Leicester, 
could have mentioned C.L. Lester, and then you did mention C.L. Lester. <laughs> I was going to say something about my film that Ruth mentioned. So I made a film about being a um, non-woman pregnant person that was, it's going to get a general release in February, so it'll be in cinemas, and I'll be doing a Q&A tour, and it was the centerpiece screening of BFI Flair, I made a great screening, and it's really exciting. But one of the things that happened is around that time there was a Guardian article. I did an interview in the Guardian and they wrote a really, what I thought was a really lovely article about me and about the film. And it was also really interesting to see um, social media comments on this. And I think this is what's really fascinating is that I feel like, and I kind of said it in toilets as well. <laughs> Sorry, the panel toilets, not just in toilets. Um, <laughs> um, is that I think that trans people, I haven't got my, I need some help with the kind of, what's the, the idiom for this, that whether we're a spanner in the works or something, is that we show up, we kind of show up the fault in the scheme, in the kind of this is this and this is this. And one of the things that this really does is it's this word woman, isn't it? It's the kind of, the idea that a trans pregnancy erases motherhood. That, and, and when we do that, when we do something that's just kind of saying, oh, here's another option, or it, it could be a bit different than that. Some of us, you know, every time we do that, people are trying to push us back into that, aren't they? And that was one of the sort of social media things, is that there was a, an image of me swimming that lots of people were then enjoying making complaints about in a kind of, you know, this is a photograph of a topless woman and therefore shouldn't be shown on, you know. And it was just like, but you know what, don't apply your rules to us, you know. It's just, do you know what I mean? It's nonsense. But it was also, um, lots of people were saying, on a particular parenting website, actually, were talking about, uh, you know, that I sometimes have gone to for bits of information about parenting, and they were saying, well, it's a woman. It's a woman. And that was their kind of, it's a bit like that sort of, um, I don't know, I, can't, I don't know what it's like, but it, but it is like you, you're kind of always going to be pushed back to this thing all the time, that this is who you are. I'm really interested in what you said about that idea where something can be woman-centred and inclusive. And I think that language, because the language ties us all up in knots all the mm -hmm. time, doesn't it? And particularly about this, it's like, the, I remember the beginning of the project and it was about pregnant men. And then I can imagine lots of people saying, well, I'm not really what I would call a pregnant man, but... We, we both got in there first. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And that's something, you know, with my story, it's like the pregnant man is a really nice image. It's got this nice kind of like, oh, pregnant man, shock of the new again, you know. Sorry, I haven't asked a question, have I? I've just... Carry on. We're loving is that all right? <laughs> <laughs> it's because I haven't done my interview with them yet, so you're thinking, all right. Um, actually, I'm going I'm to open it to questions, and I'm, I'm including the questions, and I'll probably, I, I feel like I've... Um, What's the word I've got? What do they call it? Containment issues today. <laughs> it's like I've got no filter. We can't be contained. No. We can't be, no, we can't be. We can't be contained. So I, I will probably tell more physical detail than anyone would need. But, um, yeah. yeah. Oh, great, Lee. <laughs> Save me, Lee, from my gavel. Shut up, <laughs> okay, thank you. Um, so, two things. One, just a very quick, um, how long are you interviewing for? Um, just so, shall we whack that? Um, so, we're going to be doing interviews until probably next summer. It's a bit vague, really. Um, but hopefully next summer, at some point, we need to start writing about yeah. it. And secondly, they usually take between an, an hour and two hours, but... If people really want to talk with us, I will sit there for three or four hours and I will listen. Um, and that's how we've been doing it so far. 
Perfect, thank you. And the second one um, was something you mentioned at the beginning, Francis, about the term transmasculinity. Um, I've been having some conversations and some thoughts about that, and I'd be interested to hear where you're, where you were thinking, where you're coming from with that as well. Um, well, I mean, we, we, yeah, like we said, we've been through several permutations of language in this already, but so we, yeah, we. What are you? What the the question is trying to use language that doesn't fit fit us and the end of the range of people's experience. So the reason that we were having a discussion about it was that we were using this term transmasculine, but actually some of the people that we've in, been interviewed are not masculine. So a lot of trans, a lot of non-binary people, for example, are not masculine or wouldn't identify with transmasculinity necessarily, but they are the people that we want to interview. <laughs> so how do we capture? The yeah, and, and saying not not woman is also problematic. I, I was only joking, but it's yeah. that yeah, but it it because we just can't we can carry on defining ourselves in negativity. So we're not, but yeah. yeah. So that's yeah, that's why the trans masculine started to become problematic because it, it was not fitting the experience of our participants entirely. And you know, it's it's been so difficult to know how to 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 kind of um, reach out to people to to get them to participate. And use language that they will kind of identify with and um, think that it's them that we want to interview. Yeah. Are you managed to find that balance and people are interacting with you and you're still managed to find the language that people will recognise that this is who you're looking for? I mean, I think so. You probably know more about this aspect of it as me as you think. Yeah, I mean, I suppose people look at, so our original call for podcast, actually, I, I, can I have that? Um, this is the one we've used for a while, and it says, Are you a trans man, transmasculine, non-binary, a man of trans experience, agender or genderqueer? Are you or have you been pregnant? Um, what that does is anyone <coughs> to whom it's relevant but isn't quite contained in that list generally tends to know that they are. And we've had people approach us who said, um, you know, I mean, I'm gender fluid, but I'm not transmasculine. I'm like, come on board. Like, we'd love to hear about your story. And that's what's at the centre of it, really. We're interested in, in hearing and seeing people um, and, and making sure those stories are shared. In turn, um, we're not interested in policing the boundaries. I was just going to say something about the boundaries and the words. And one of the things that I think is really interesting is how many pregnant people, whoever, somebody who might identify as a cisgender woman, and then I talk to people and they say that point of pregnancy, when you're called mum and mother, that you're supposed to have this kind of heightened sense of your womanhood is a pressure on everyone. This isn't something that's just about somebody's identity, it's something about your body and the expectations of what that means, becoming not your own mm. and becoming this kind of um, stereotype, a cultural stereotype of what pregnant person is, what motherhood is, what woman is. And I've spoken to lots of women who've said you know, how much anguish they had in the kind of this is, I'm supposed to be nice now, I'm supposed to be happy now, I'm supposed to be kind of, you know, nurturing and feeling all of this. There's so much pressure on everyone. Again, I feel like we're the kind of, you know, we can change things maybe, just change it hopefully for everybody, like the expectations. That actually feels like one of these areas again where, where trans rights are about more than trans yeah. rights, right? A lot of us are talking about this earlier. Mm. And I thought, you know, to me this is partly a feminist intervention. It's about mm. body autonomy, it's about supporting people where they're at. And it's also about expanding services in a way that hopefully cis women will benefit from as much as... Yeah. And, and I was going to say, I was really interested in when you were talking about the legal side of it, about who can be sort of father, but mother is always 
the gestational part. I mean, my partner is our child's mother, you know, and that's just a kind of fundamental thing. And I'm not. And whether I'm sort of just that that word doesn't fit. So it's just kind of. And what's the thing? Because we've got on the one hand, you know, we've got people from the 1950s talking about motherhood. And then on the other hand, we've got lots of people kind of saying, you're trying to take that away from us. We love that. What do they love? You know, I think it's really fascinating, this kind of, because a lot of it is about expectation and assumption, isn't it? You've been listening to the Transforming Spaces podcast. Thanks for listening. And if you want to continue this conversation or you have any points to add, we'd be really interested to hear your views. Um, so do please tweet us at... At Gender Intel. Da, 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 da. <laughs>